Hi, I'm Corey Russin, Director of Recruitment and Internship Placement for the Department of Public Administration at Binghamton University. I want to welcome you to our podcast. My colleague, Dr. David Campbell, calls us to do good well, and that captures the public service mission of our Masters of Public Administration program and our conviction that informed and responsible community action can solve community problems. It'll be fine. <laughs> nobody, nobody will know that we all have bedhead when they hear it yeah. on the on the radio. Right. That, that's my train of thought. So it's all good. <laughs> um, so I have some questions prepared, and there are a couple that are for the both of you, and then some that are like for specific people. So I'll just denote that like before I jump into the question. Um, for the both of you is, um, can you package this complex? nuanced area of study into a one to two sentence nutshell for listeners who may be unfamiliar and that could be um, GMAP and or public administration. Sure, why don't you start with a hard question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I would say if I have to condense this down to something small that the idea behind a certificate in genocide and mass atrocity prevention is that these incidents of mass violence that occur around the world are not isolated events. They are processes that um, involve lots of actors, including actors in the public and nonprofit sectors who are sometimes unaware or complicit in actions that lead to mass violence. And so if we have more public administrators aware of the potential to not contribute to violence, mass violence, then we'll be better able to prevent those. That's Dr. Nadia Rabai, co-director and professor of public administration and Institute for Genocide and Mass Atrocity Prevention at Binghamton University. Carrie could do a better job with this. Well, I'll start us off easy. Go ahead. I mean, I'll say just to to give a really succinct definition of what we mean by atrocity prevention, even outside of the context of of public administration. Atrocity prevention is ensuring that the rights of the most vulnerable identity groups in any given context are protected. And ultimately, that's a responsibility that needs to be undertaken at every level of society and by every sector of society because when those rights are protected, uh, we will not see uh, the, uh, the high level uh, mass atrocities that are typically associated, uh, that we think of when we think of things like genocide, crimes against humanity, et cetera. That's Binghamton University professor, Dr. Carrie Wiggum, discussing the importance of genocide and mass atrocity prevention within public administration. That's a much better explanation. And if we, if you piggyback on that, then the idea that people in the public and nonprofit sectors have a particular responsibility because they already have the core values of looking out for the public interest in particular for marginalized groups in society. Thank you. Well, you said it was a hard question to start off with, but I think that that really gets the ball rolling. So thank you both. Okay, so I guess a good, another good question to sort of hit a, a baseline here um, is for both of you, can you explain the difference between 
genocide and mass atrocities. Again, for listeners who may be unfamiliar. So genocide is a legally defined crime uh, that's defined by the United Nations Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, which is actually the first international law passed by the United Nations in 1948. And it says that genocide is committing any of a series of acts, including killing groups of people, but also some other acts that don't involve killing, um, with the intent of destroying in whole or in part any of four protected groups. And those are groups based on um, uh, nationality, uh, race, ethnicity, or religion. That's the legal definition of genocide. Genocide also fits into a broader term that we call mass atrocities. This is a newer term that's developed after the Genocide Convention. And it includes genocide, but it also includes two other international crimes, crimes against humanity and war crimes. Um, so all three of those things, uh, genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity, fit within this broader umbrella term of mass atrocities. And so I would add to, Carrie's provided a great definition, and we use the term genocide and mass atrocity to indicate, not to indicate that genocide is somehow um, a more severe um, crime, but because it's a recognizable term. And so if we were just to say mass atrocity prevention, people may not know what we're talking about. And so often we use the term genocide and mass, mass atrocity not to signify that genocide is the first among equals. These are all horrific crimes. Um, but at the same time, we want to use something that people are familiar with, a term that they're, that they're aware of. And I would also add that what Carrie described as those three areas, genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, are mass atrocity crimes that are defined under international law. There are other mass atrocities. And so we don't limit ourselves um, to looking at those that are defined by law as mass atrocities. The same way that in all aspects of public administration, we don't limit our expectations of, say, ethical behavior on the part of public administrators to merely complying with the law. That's a minimum standard of what our expectations are. We hope that people will go beyond that. And so in the case of atrocity prevention, mass atrocity prevention, we're looking for people who are committed to preventing anything that resembles or even moves towards those crimes, even if it doesn't meet the definitions of any one of those three atrocity crimes. Yeah, but it would be more accurate to say genocide and other mass atrocities, because genocide is a mass atrocity. As the president and founder of Genocide Watch, Gregory Stanton is seen as a founder in the field of genocide studies. His conceptual framework of 10 stages of genocide has provided a foundation meant to understand how genocides occur and at which stages are the best to intervene to prevent genocide and mass atrocities. So, Sort of another baseline question. Um, Carrie, can you describe what the 10 warning signs or stages of mass atrocities are, please? So I think here you're referring to the 10 stages of genocide, which is a framework that was designed by 
Um, one of the founders of the field of genocide studies, Gregory Stanton, who now is the, the president of uh, an NGO, a genocide prevention NGO called Genocide Watch. And um, Stanton's model, which he developed first in the 1990s for the US State Department, uh, was a way of framing genocide as a process, not as something that happened overnight out of nowhere, but as a process. And if we look at it as a process, the long-term social and political process that in, starts with much um, smaller stages, earlier stages, that opens up the possibility that we can learn to recognize those early stages and intercede at those moments so that things don't escalate to the point of what we typically associate when, uh, with the term genocide. So Stanton's model starts with much earlier stages that are, are necessary, that are prerequisites for a genocide to take place. Um, that uh, genocide couldn't occur without these early stages. So for instance, the first stage is classification. In order for there to be a genocide, you first have to have a society that divides people uh, into different groups, uh, identity groups. Um, now to be clear, Dividing people into groups is a normal function of the human brain, our psychology. It happens in every society. So in that way, every society is, uh, is somewhere along this uh, path towards genocide because uh, we naturally classify people into groups. Um, those groups can be uh, uh, based on things like gender, race, and there's no harm in classifying people into groups. The problems come when you start saying that one of those groups is more important or better than other groups. So when you start developing what are called in-group biases, and, um, and when you start uh, uh, framing the out-group as the other, and even more as a dangerous other. So you move from these early stages uh, like classification to things like dehumanization, which is I think Stan's fourth stage. A dehumanization is when um, the in-group the group in power, for instance, uh, starts to attribute non-human characteristics to members of the out group or the more vulnerable identity group. So in Rwanda, um, it was very common to refer to Tutsis as cockroaches. This is a form of dehumanization. In the Holocaust, Hitler would uh, often sp spoke about uh, European Jews as a virus that was infecting Europe. That's also a dehumanizing force. In the United States, um, uh, we uh, hear the similar use of the term caravan to talk about um, refugee populations from Central America and Mexico entering the United States was a, is dehumanizing language because it's talking about them not as humans, but as this non-human thing. Um, this is where things start getting really dangerous when we hear dehumanizing language. But then it proceeds onwards to things like discrimination where actual legislation is passed um, to give some groups different rights than other groups have. Uh, things like persecution, where certain groups are then sectioned off from society and sent to uh, ghettoized spaces. Uh, and then this escalates to what Stan refers to as extermination, and he intentionally uses this term that we associate with insects, for instance, to reinforce the idea that by the time we reach extermination, the victims have become so dehumanized that we think of the, that the, the perpetrator group thinks of them more as, as, as bugs, as insects, rather than as people. What's a, a very important thing to know about Stanton's model, though, is it doesn't end with extermination. The 10th stage of Stanton's model is denial. Um, even after genocides come to an end, the perpetrators take great efforts to 
um, destroy evidence of the crimes that they've perpetrated, uh, and they continually denial, deny the fact that, uh, that victims suffered in the way that victims say they suffered. And this is a form of continuing the violence of genocide. So all of that is part and parcel of this long um, process that we can think of as genocide. Not, uh, and, and the more that we think of it as this thing that happens in stages rather than only that ninth stage of extermination, the more opportunities we have to intervene and prevent things from escalating to that point. Thank you so much for that. It's really helpful. With a better understanding of genocide studies and Stanton's framework, I asked both Dr. Wiggum and Dr. Rubai to weigh in on which of the UN Sustainable Development Goals align with the work they do on genocide and mass atrocity prevention. Furthermore, I was curious to identify how their work in genocide and mass atrocity preventions coincides with the work they do in public administration. A question for both of you now, which is also a good and hearty question. <laughs> um, which of the UN Sustainable Development Goals do you both feel most closely align with the work that you do, whether that be genocide and mass atrocity prevention related things or public administration or both? Well, for me, it's the same one for both of those categories and that's SDG 16. Um, and 16 address, uh, addresses issues of peace and justice um, and strong institutions. So in the conventional public administration sense, what we're trying to do is build strong and resilient institutions um, that are able to fulfill their responsibilities under all of the other sustainable development goals. And the fact is that within that same goal, they address the issues that are most relevant um, most directly relevant to atrocity prevention, and that's related to justice. That said, all of the other sustainable development goals um, relate to aspects of atrocity prevention, particularly when we think about um, the notion of upstream prevention, a concept that um, is associated with the work of James Waller, um, this idea that well before violence occurs, and even well before we see some of those earlier stages that Carrie was speaking about in terms of the, the stages toward genocide, there are opportunities to make society more equitable, um, a healthier environment, um, more sustainable, as you would expect from the Sustainable Development Goals. So things related to climate change, things related to education and healthcare, um, and um, rights for women, um, and protecting the rights of women and children related to labor issues, because all of those um, areas of societal life contribute to creating the environment that either lends itself to moving toward mass violence or prevent, provides an environment in which the community can be more resilient to, against the, those kinds of violence. Yeah, uh, so a scholar who's been really important in the field of genocide and atrocity prevention is Alex Bellamy, and he developed this, this, this term called the atrocity prevention lens, which is basically the idea that in all of the public policy that we develop anywhere in the world, we should be looking at that policy through this lens of atrocity prevention. So if we're working on ed looking at education policy, how can we um, use this, make sure that this education policy is also 
while it's doing what it's initially set out to do, also making the, uh, the occurrence of genocide or other forms of identity-based violence less likely. When we're doing uh, transportation policy, when we're doing any public policy, we can look at through an atrocity prevention lens. And really, the lens of sustainability that, out of which the sustainable development goals are built, uh, I, they, they align so directly, as Nadia said, with a lot of our underlying goals for um, atrocity prevention. So um, even though they're not framed as the atrocity, the uh, development goals for atrocity prevention, actually, if all of the sustainable development goals are met, if we actually implement these goals um, it, all around the world, we would be building a world where atrocities cannot happen. Because when we're focusing on things like reduced inequalities, like, um, like uh, absence of poverty, gender equality, quality education for all, all of those things, like Nadia said, are deeply connected with building societies where genocides cannot occur. And if we link this back to one of your earlier questions, Sarah, about kind of overall, what are we trying to accomplish um, with this? Um, you can bring in that notion that Carrie was just talking about in terms of an atrocity prevention lens to say if we had public administrators um, in positions throughout government at all levels, throughout civil society organizations in all different places, applying this atrocity prevention lens to the decisions and actions that they that they are undertaking, we would move the needle so far towards atrocity prevention. And our goal really is in in pushing this as a as an area of study is ultimately to make our work obsolete. The ideal would be you don't need to have a program in genocide and mass atrocity prevention because you have um, this well instilled as, as kind of core value um, across so many organizations and with so many individuals. So like so many other things in the public sector where we're meeting needs, you know, like for police and security services or for healthcare services, the, it would be great if we could make those the need for those services obsolete and no longer need them. The reality is we know that's probably not going to be the case, but we can diminish the demand um, by providing those services more effectively. With an understanding of how genocide and mass atrocity prevention works in public administration, I wanted to know what work is being done at the local level. Specifically, how does local government and their communities incorporate the UN's sustainable development goals in relation to genocide and mass atrocity prevention? Thank you. Um, so a follow-up question about the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Um, a question for the both of you. Do you think that it would be feasible to scale down the SDG goals like to a regional or local sense for um, local governments or other grassroots organizations to use? If you think it's feasible, can you talk about maybe what that would look like? Yes, yeah, so there's some great work that's being done um, in local co in communities. I'm not going to be able to name them off the top of my head unless you give me a moment to look them up. <laughs> but there are some local governments um, that are applying the sustainable development goals and developing their own plans under the sustainable development goals. There even is a university, Carnegie Mellon University, um, that has developed its own SDG um, implementation plan. Um, and so this is absolutely possible to be done at all levels. Maybe not every 
every single one of the goals would be part of a plan at a local um, or a university level, but every one of those has implications. So a university, for example, Binghamton University could use the SDGs to look at its climate impact. It could look at its policies as they relate to gender. It certainly is an educational institution has a role to play in um, how are we preparing um, the next generation of people. We have policies that are related to parking and transportation and how we um, incentivize um, certain kinds of behavior. So there's lots of opportunities to bring in the SDGs um, and then particular to SDG 16. So another question for the both of you, I know it's really hard to whittle down to one thing, but if you had to pick just one main focus um, in the field this year, what would be the most important priority piece to kind of tackle for the coming year? Well, I'm going to give you two. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to fudge a little bit and say that you're saying right now, and I'm going to give you a 2020 and a 2021 answer since we're kind of on the cusp still, even though it's March. Um, so clearly we're still in the middle of a global pandemic. Um, and that is dominating um, and, and um, monopolizing attention um, for policymakers, for individuals, families, um, for businesses all around the world, and rightly so. Um, as Carrie and I and a colleague of ours, Susan Appy, a former Binghamton University professor who's now at Albany, have, have written about, the COVID-19 pandemic has an opportunity, a yet unrealized opportunity, to be used to apply this atrocity prevention lens that Carrie was talking about earlier, and to make decisions about pandemic responses um, in, with an eye toward how are our decisions going to either elevate risk of mass atrocity or build resilience and address some of the underlying structural um, factors that are contributing to disparities in access to healthcare, disparities in death rates um, and infection rates. Um, so on and, and one level, the pandemic is one of those issues that has to be at near the top of the list. Um, the other thing that I'll mention uh, as it relates to a project that I and my fellow co-director at, at IGMAP are working on um, right now has to do with the power of social media. Um, and this is probably something that's of interest to, to a lot of students in the MPA program because they're actively involved in using lots of social media as a means of communication. And while social media has many um, positive roles that it can play, um, it also has demonstrated um, a role in contributing to polarizing society, contributing to the ability to spread messages of hate and the kind of dehumanizing messages that Carrie was talking about earlier, farther and faster um, in service of those who would commit mass atrocities and are committing mass atrocities. And that's another place where I think it's urgent that we have policies um, that are based on a, a deep awareness of the evidence and are committed to using the power of, of public administration and public policy to, to address those problems. 
Yeah, so, and I think that Nadia's two examples um, exemplify this underlying issue that is consistently behind everything that I like, that, 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 that I, you know, this is where I start becoming like an evangelist. Um, for atrocity prevention, because ultimately, like there, there's no the, the goal is to get every person, every sector within a society, everyone working within a society, to ask themselves the question: How can I change the way I'm doing what I'm doing on a daily basis so that it also increases the protections of vulnerable populations or makes the society more equal, more sustainable, if you want to use that term. So this is like the eternal issue. If we're applying this atrocity prevention lens to the work that we're doing, if we're not only relying on state officials at the national level or international organizations to apply that lens, but to think of it as something that also we have an individual responsibility to apply, um, then, then we're all contributing to building this world where um, uh, mass atrocities are incredibly, uh, are, are increasingly less likely. Um, so whether that be in the way that we respond to a global pandemic, the way that we respond to, um, uh, you know, uh, conversations around a monument in our town square, um, or uh, uh, to news that a, a new, a, a military coup on the other side of the world all of these things, we should always be asking ourselves, what, what can I do? What is my role in making sure that, that um, the protection of, of vulnerable populations becomes ever more a reality in my life and the life of those uh, around the world? And I know you asked for one from each of us, and we've each given you several, but I'll give you one more, which is that you, the United States right now is... Um, confronting a lot of very serious challenges related to um, a racial reckoning with, you know, a reckoning with our history and our continued legacy of slavery and um, dehumanization of African Americans, um, as well as political polarization that is grounded in a strong foundation of explicitly racist attitudes and policies. Those are connected to a failure to ever address the mass atrocities of our past, um, including colonization and dissemination, decimation of indigenous populations, as well as the history of slavery. We have never done in the United States what we insist that other countries do around the world following mass atrocities. We have never addressed them. We are still in, in large part, the denial stage, as Carrie described, as um, a continuation of the violence. Um, and it does continue, not only in the form of denial, but in, in a form of policies and actions that continue to um, discriminate against and result in in deaths um, of and mistreatment of large segments of our, our population. And so that is also an important issue. If we don't think so much on a global scale and bring it to the US, I would say that's the place where this is the most pressing issue for us. Thank you. After defining and discussing the field of genocide and mass atrocity in detail, I wanted to know the role that new media plays in genocide and mass atrocity. 
Um, so Nadia, how important is it to prepare public administrators to communicate in fresh new ways and reach wide audiences? I'm thinking particularly like through social media, through podcasting, um, new media that we're dealing with. Okay, that's an interesting question, Sarah. And I think this is a place where this generation and future generations of public administration students have a real uh, potential to make um, a, a dramatic changes and have a real impact. Students come into the MPA program wanting to change the world. And in one sense, our responsibility is to illustrate that yes, they, we want them to do that and to give them the skills to do that and at the same time put some realistic expectations on, you know, we're not probably going to have one person who's going to fix all of climate change or all of um, mass violence, but that everyone can play their part. And since you've framed the question in terms of what can they do in terms of communication, I think this is a place where we can actually learn from students, that we can help students understand how social media, for example, um, and new to media tools that I don't even know of, let alone know how to use, um, can be, are being used to, for harm, are being used to promote violence and to engage students in conversations about how they can contribute um, to what um, Susan Benish and her colleagues at the Dangerous Speech Project refer to as counter speech. So there's this idea that there is a kind of speech that contributes to violence by virtue of a number of factors related to what's being said that dehumanizes and does this othering, this us versus them um, and placing us above them um, and the power of who's spreading that message who's receiving that message. But the idea here is that we don't want to limit speech by cracking down and preventing dangerous messages from being expressed. Um, it's not a matter of shutting down um, voices, but countering them with other voices that are more effective at um, exposing the untruths behind those dangerous messages and also providing alternative ways for people to engage um, with with other with others um, and to as Carrie talked about earlier the idea that othering in and of itself is not problematic it's when you other and have a hierarchy that says one group is better than the other um, so I think if we can help students understand what counter speech is and how they can engage in counter speech effectively, um, which may mean taking advantage of social media. Um, and that doesn't involve necessarily confronting directly um, the person who's saying something that's dangerous. It may mean creating another environment in which you have an alternative message. Counter speech sometimes takes the form of a new podcast that has a, di a different message, a more unifying message that is able to attract an audience 
and persuade them um, to think differently. Um, it can take the form of, um, you know, new television programs, new um, movies. Um, it can also take the form of how we have public forums and discourse. So not all communication is going to take place on social media. I would assume that many of our MPA students are going out and they're holding um, community or town um, forums, conversations. Um, and so the opportunity to kind of structure the dialogue in ways that is more constructive. Carrie's going to uh, go out here. Nadia and I, I actually, along with our colleague Susan Appy again, um, just started, uh, finished working on this case study on um, a group of musicians, of, of music, of, of singers, songwriters in South Sudan who came together to uh, write this peace song um, it was uh, that that the translation of the, the title is enough. Um, that's just about that they've had enough of the violence, enough of the division. They brought together musicians from uh, or singers who were singing in multiple different uh, local languages uh, as well as in English. And the idea was to perform a, a, a counter speech through music. Uh, and this song ultimately became, uh, went to the top of the, the, the uh, radio uh, charts in South Sudan has become incredibly popular. The song you are listening to is called Kifaya, which translates to enough. It's an example of how new media is being utilized in genocide and mass atrocity prevention. So just another example of how everyone has something to contribute. Um, it's about finding how, what the best contribution you can make based on where you are and the tools that you have and what you're good at. Interestingly enough, Dr. Wiggum comes from a theater background and offered a unique perspective on the connections between theater and art and genocide and mass atrocity prevention. Um, so talking about artistic forms of expression as it relates to these fields, um, Carrie, you actually come from a theater background. So I was wondering if you could tell me what made you transition into such a different field and how the two are connected, if at all. Yeah, well, if you can't tell already, I think everything's connected. So that's why. Uh, so yes, they're connected, uh, just like everything is. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I started as a theater director. That's what I went to, to undergrad for. And I worked as a, a theater director in New York City for a while. And I was uh, a lot of what I was doing was creating new plays um, that were oftentimes exploring identity. Uh, and difference and the way that identity is negotiated. I didn't, I wouldn't have framed it in those terms then, but now I, I see that that's what I was doing. Um, and, uh, and then I, I went to grad school to get a degree in this weird field called performance studies that I thought was just gonna be another avenue for me to study theater. And I found out that actually there are all of these people in performance studies that are not just studying what we would traditionally call a performance, but studying political processes or religious rituals um, uh, or public activism. 
as performances, and that's not performance in any sort of negative term or disingenuine term, right? It, it just means um, they are things that happen in public space that are meant to do things to people, to enact change or impact audiences. So I, uh, and around the same time, it didn't, uh, it, uh, I, I started, uh, I started uh, dating someone who was also uh, uh, deeply involved in atrocity prevention. So all of those things sort of collided and, and changed the path of my life. Um, so I wouldn't say that I look at, at genocide uh, or, or mass other mass atrocities as the same thing as theater. But I think that by looking at them as performances, what it allows us to do is see how they're constructed, how they're put together by people at all levels of society, either consciously or unconsciously. And when we start to understand how things are built, how things are constructed, that gives us the tools to deconstruct, to, to try and um, prevent the, the negative constructions that are causing damage, like the kinds of uh, identity-based uh, uh, violence or discrimination that can lead to genocide. So uh, it's a very roundabout way of how I, how I got there, and it probably doesn't make a lot of sense, but uh, it, it, it somehow has this weird logic in my head, but though maybe that's a story that I'm telling myself in retrospect. Um, so Nadia, I'm less familiar with your background. If you're comfortable with it, could you talk about kind of what brought you to where you are today? Sure, I can talk about that. Um, it's a longer road um, because I've been in this in academia longer. Um, but so my background is a kind of a traditional political science and into the subfield of public administration and public policy um, track. And within that, um, much of my research over the years has focused on um, marginalized groups um, and issues of diversity. Um, integration and cultural competence, starting initially with issues related to um, diversity within the workplace. And so how are different groups of employees being treated by their supervisors? And what kind of skills do supervisors need to be more inclusive? of uh, different populations. So I started my career at, at New Mexico State University um, and was there for 15 years. So the issues we were dealing with were primarily regarding integration of a large um, Hispanic population with a white population. And in fact, um, the community where I lived is, is one of the communities that would be known as a majority minority community where um, the, the Hispanic community was larger, a larger percentage of the population um, in that in that community than than the white population. So those were the issues that I looked at um, initially. Then because I was on a community on the US-Mexico border, I started getting involved in issues related to immigration and how immigrants, um, including undocumented immigrants, were being treated um, in comparative studies of how they were being treated by the counties all along the US-Mexico border across the four states um, that comprise the border. And um, working for change in national government policies that um, essentially encouraged those border counties to treat undocumented immigrants like criminals. Um, because of the lack of resources that were available and the policies at the national level that created these um, incentives and disincentives at the local level. 
Um, when I moved back to um, upstate New York, to Binghamton, um, I continued that work on immigration issues for a while, um, and but also then shifted a little bit more to how do we educate the next generation of public affairs professionals so that they know how to be inclusive of whatever population it is that they're working with in their community. Um, so my work also started to be more international at that point. The transition into atrocity prevention is a bit idiosyncratic and not necessarily anything that I ever anticipated. Um, so prior to the Institute for Genocide and Mass Atrocity Prevention, or what we call IGMAP, um, being established, the idea for something like this came to us um, through um, an alum of Binghamton University, um, and at that time an anonymous um, donor, or a potential anonymous donor. And the provost put together a group of about 15 faculty, um, to brainstorm what would Binghamton University do if they were to receive some money to dedicated to atrocity prevention. And we came up with a whole slew of ideas related to academic programming and conferences and guests and research. Um, and we presented that and over a period of about almost a year, um, there were some conversations and discussions and negotiations and ultimately the donor um, decided to support this endeavor. At that time, um, I and um, Professor Max Penske in philosophy were asked by the provost um, to co-direct this new institute. We, we jokingly say that that was, uh, we don't know whether he really knew what he was doing and it was brilliant in putting the two of us together or <laughs> it was just Pure luck, I don't know. Um, all I can say is that I think the reasons that I was asked to be involved in this project was because my research has always been focused on informing practice. It has not been just about purely academic research that would be published just in peer-reviewed journals and only read by other academics. It's always been with an eye toward how do we take this, get it in the hands of policymakers and public administrators so that they will actually use it and make change out in the community. Um, so I've always been speaking to those audiences. Um, I also was doing a fair amount of work in Latin America um, and that was one of the geographic areas of interest um, of the donors to make sure that that area, that region of the world was not excluded um, and ignored in the discussions on atrocity prevention. Um, it was a big, um, sharp learning curve, very steep learning curve. I literally took a suitcase of books and printed articles with me on a winter break um, and spent a winter break on the Galapagos Islands and every day read and read and read and did that for about three weeks um, just to bring myself up to, you know, a basic level of understanding and it's a continuous process i i actually don't consider myself um, an expert um, i consider myself as someone who's still learning and is open to learning more about how i can contribute and how i can help others contribute to atrocity prevention it's been a pretty long winding route but something i want to point out is that 
this Nadia talking about the work she was doing on the U.S.-Mexico border and the way that undocumented um, immigrants were being treated, that is already atrocity prevention work. She just wasn't calling it that. And there are so many people in the U.S. and around the world who they are doing the work of atrocity prevention. It's not important if they, they want to call it that or if they see it in those terms or not. But any work that's looking at um, uh, making sure that all rights are protected equally, um, making sure that groups that have been historically disadvantaged, that, that remedies are made to, uh, to, uh, to change that, that is atrocity prevention work, whether or not you choose to call it that. Thank you both for those concluding thoughts. I think um, this entire conversation has been um, really enlightening and fun. I hope you both felt the same way. <laughs> so can we ask yeah. you a question? Yeah, go for it. I guess it's only <laughs> fair, right? It's only fair. So, so you did the Genocide and Mass Atrocity Prevention Certificate. Can you talk a little bit about what motivated you to do that and, and what your big takeaway was from that, the classes that you took? Yeah, it was just so novel to me. I had never before really been exposed. I mean, you learn in school, right, about the Holocaust and like there's those really, you know, in, in your K through 12 education, you get like a small glimpse into what that entails. But then I really, through the certificate, was exposed to the depth of it. Um, and it was, um, I think, the most valuable to me piece of education that I got because I'm able to, as Carrie was talking about, realize that nothing happened, everything happens, um, everything's connected, and um, it gives me a really interesting perspective, both historically and contemporary. Um, I think the biggest takeaway from the certification, if I had to pinpoint one, um, for me, I guess when I'm taking in information when I'm looking at the news in the morning on my on my news apps or reading articles, I'm able to um, digest that language in an analytical way and be able to understand whether it be politics or anything else, like kind of read between the lines, I guess is what I'm trying to say, and like understand um, language that is hurtful or demeaning to others and just be able to um, put this lens or this perspective on the information that I intake. Um, so I know that's a really, a really general takeaway, um, but it's been really valuable to me. Then it's worked. If you're applying that atrocity prevention lens, then it's worked. <laughs> I don't know if there'll be opportunities to build into um, that there is this uh, genocide and mass atrocity prevention certificate that students in any master's degree at Binghamton University can complete. And we also have the world's first and as yet only uh, master of science in genocide and mass atrocity prevention that is just now starting to accept applications for the first class um, that will be enrolled in the fall of 2021. Um, That's exciting. So you wanna, yeah, you can come back if you want another master's degree. <laughs> <laughs> I, I need to. I need to do my own decompression from, from school. For I get it. Yes. I get it. Yes. <laughs>
Well, really quickly, um, I just wanted to say thank you both for um, aiding in the education that I got. I feel really grateful to have worked through the program and just a little life update. Um, send me all the good juju that you can because I'm currently waiting to hear back on an interview. I'm moving to Seattle and oh, I interviewed- wow. I thought it was Texas. Yeah, things have changed. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'm going to Seattle and I interviewed at uh, the Seattle Indian Health Board and they advocate for Duwamish and Alaskan Native tribes and I would be a project associate there. So I'm going to hear this week on that job. So thank you. Oh, that's fantastic. I really that's hope you so get it. Exciting. And Seattle's a great place. It's a great city. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in to Do Good Well from Binghamton University's Department of Public Administration, a podcast dedicated to public service and the folks at the forefront of doing good in our communities. To learn more about the topics discussed in this podcast or to learn more about the MPA program, please check the links in our show notes. It worked out for waking up 15 minutes before, right? <laughs> <laughs> but you planned those questions before. You didn't just do those this morning. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.